to Exploring Filipino Kitchens. I'm your host, Nastasha Allen. episode by saying that there were a lot of times over the past couple months where I felt way in over my head. And that's pretty common, right? I don't always trust that I can figure stuff out. And when that happens, my confidence just tanks when things don't go right. But when they do, things can turn out really, really well. This summer, I co-hosted a Filipino food tour in Toronto, where we visited three Filipino food spots in the city that were run by second-generation Filipino-Canadians. They were really different from each other, and honestly, I loved getting to know this community. It was fantastic getting to know these different business owners who were totally passionate about sharing Filipino food in ways that they knew how to do best. The first place we visited was a fast casual restaurant that used to be someplace where you could buy groceries and send home a balik bayan box. The other was an artisan ice cream shop, you know, the kinds that sell those black ice cream cones, with lines out the door for creamy ube ice cream and pulver on pie. The third was a bar, and oh, I love bars. They make everything in-house there, from noodles made with squid ink to longanisa sausages with this crazy good marbling, made with pasture-raised pigs just outside the city. And talking to these really driven, super passionate people about the businesses that they've built their lives around, basically, it made me realize a couple things. One, that you really can't take away this knack that Filipinos have for being hospitable people. And another is that we really do want to cook this kind of food, the food we know best, for others because it is legitimately good and we want you to try it. Third is that we do what it takes to educate ourselves and our customers about the tastes and the food culture of the Philippines. And those types of realizations, it's pretty profound when you think about You know, these guys are in their 20s and 30s. They're people my age, and they're doing what they can to bring that food culture forward. All of this, in essence, drives the question that I want to answer this episode. Why do we need to know about the history of our foods? And going a little bit deeper into that, about the ancient Filipino diet. That's what we're talking about this episode. Thankfully, we've got the foremost authority on the subject as a guest on our show today, Dr. Ame Garong, who's the head researcher of the archaeology division at the National Museum of the Philippines, wrote a book in 2013 called Ancient Filipino Diet. It's the first study of Filipino food in prehistory, before any colonizers or foreign influence arrived in the Philippines, and it's written to explore and understand the prehistoric diet of our ancestors. Admittedly, the book itself is pretty technical, but its contents are outstanding. Today, we're going to talk with Dr. Ame about her research and her experiences at the different places they visited, digging for clues to tell us what our ancestors ate. 
and also kind of answering how much of this lines up with what we today, as Filipinos, both in the Philippines and outside of the country. I've been so excited to do this episode for some time now, so let's get straight into it. Dr. Amegaro has worked at the National Museum of the Philippines for 21 years. So it's quite a very long time already that uh, I'm working in the archaeology division. And eventually, that became my career as an archaeologist. I've been doing lots of excavation, more on burials. My focus is more on zoo archaeological research that entails understanding food resources, subsistence of humans in general. She graduated with a zoology degree from one of the Philippines' oldest universities. And originally, my intention is to be a doctor. However, I, I failed <laughs> to achieve that ambition. And then because of my frustrations that I did not go to medical school, my father, who is a Methodist pastor, he suggested that uh, why don't I take a master course in anthropology? So I said, why not? Uh, and my father said, it's about culture, it's about humans, so you can know other people by studying them. I said, oh, that sounds interesting. And then along the way, I have a classmate who told me that the National Museum is in need of a, a zoo archaeologist. So since I have a zoology background and I have already a year of anthropology course, I decided to apply. However, at first I failed because they only need one. And the one who they took, he was already somebody in anthropology. So I was, again, it's another frustration. However, maybe I was destined to be an archaeologist. A month after, they called me back to the National Museum, informing me that there is another position, that uh, they need a researcher. So I immediately did not think um, twice or what. I said, yes, I am available. Even among some of the most accomplished people, Frustration and failure can be pretty common. Despite its being a subject that deals with a lot of ancient stuff, archaeology in itself is a relatively new field in the Philippines. It's like 20 years in the Philippines that we have this school. So maybe not everybody knows that we are offering that course. I asked Dr. Garung about what some of her early experiences with fieldwork was like. For example, her first excavation site was something called a habitation site, where... What I first saw were all batteries, the remains of utensils. And then she got to work on a real burial site in the province of Negros, where... We are excavating this plaza, and they have this funerary goods, Chinese ware or ceramic goods, together in the remains of the human... And then, um, of course, it's my first time. And like many first times. An accident happened, and there was this pebble on the ground. And like, this is on ground-level ground. 
So technically above the actual pit where Dr. Garing and her team was busy cleaning up their latest find. And then there was a movement from from the surface that that pebble fell on the skull of the individual that caused the skull to be broken. Oh no, I would have cried on the spot if that happened to me. And my senior was there <laughs> and I was scolded. But actually it's an accident. I'm not really aware that there was a, a pebble there. And something just made the movement. I don't know, because I was really engrossed in, you know, exposing the skulls, the bones. So I felt really, <laughs> yeah, that I really felt bad after that. It was on my hand. Eh? <laughs> so it's under my responsibility. But that's, a, that's another lesson learned that um, from then on, I was so careful and always checking my square if there's uh, something like that, I should remove it before I, I go down. After that, I'm a bit okay. <laughs> so, if we wanted to find out what our ancestors actually ate as a part of their paleo diet, where would we start? If you were someone like Dr. Garron, since I am doing archaeology, it's far beyond the history. So I'm focusing on diet. We use the paleo diet analysis. And far beyond the concept of a food trend even existing, this paleo diet was the real deal. That means early humans ate these foods because it's what they knew how to prepare and consume. One of the best way to know the paleo diet of our ancestor is by using stable isotope analysis. But what exactly is stable isotope analysis? That's pretty technical, I know. And how does it help us identify what prehistoric Filipinos actually ate? In Dr. Garang's book, she explains that for stuff that's organic, you know, think of flesh and blood and anything that goes into a green bin, the ratio of carbon and nitrogen isotopes in that organic matter tends to be stable enough so that, even thousands of years later, we can now apply modern technology and scientific techniques to find out where the protein and that properly preserved sample of bones usually uh, come from. That's the best way if you wanted um, an absolute information on diet. I'm totally getting flashbacks of playing Where in the World is Carmen San Diego and thinking about how awesome it would be now to join Dr. Garong on one of these digs. So, what exactly were some of those foods that ancient Filipinos ate? According to Dr. Garong, she says that, quote, food sources in the Philippines, especially plants, haven't differed much then as now. She adds that, quote, Plants collected for the study served as staple food since prehistoric time. What that means is that it includes indigenous varieties of sugarcane, rice, and millet, meaning ancient Filipinos knew how to grow these crops. And if you momentarily blank on what the Banaue rice terraces are, that's pretty close to one of the sites Dr. Garang worked in, I suggest you look that up right away. 
At some of these newer burial sites, they found corn that came with the Spanish galleons, a much later part of our ancestors' diet. There were also root crops that included native varieties of taro and yams and lots of old world bananas. Sago palm was also consumed in some regions. There were gastropods and bivalves, you know, snails, coconut crabs, oysters, shellfish of all kinds. And prehistoric Filipinos, like many people across the world who lived in coastal areas, knew that seaweed was a delicious and really nutritious source of food. There were fish of every size, shape, and color. Early ancestors of things like catfish, tilapia, mudfish, dolphinfish, and even flying fish that you see in some Philippine markets today. Maybe the flying fish is a bit uncommon, but in rural areas, they might still be around. Across the archipelago, and especially in mountainous areas, as we expect, our ancestors hunted and killed a lot of wild game, including carabao, deer, and wild boar. They trapped smaller creatures like bats and civet cats, low-flying birds, and other kinds of local fowl, like chickens, probably. When they learned how to domesticate animals, a lot of them learned how to herd goats and keep pigs to add to the community's food supply. Remember, in prehistoric times, barangays, or these communities with a leader usually called the datu, were common ways that communities in the Philippines arranged themselves. So I asked Dr. Garong if she could give us a few examples of what they found in different areas of the Philippines. In archaeology, once you you have the site, you will have an idea of the food resources. Like if you if you have some animals that you recovered from your excavation, and then you identified it as a bovid or um, or pig or goat, that will give you an idea. There's a clue of the possible food resources of those individuals. But then, um, it's just a clue. Which means that a scientifically backed isotope analysis basically trumps what we simply used to presume were the things that people ate because we found some gnawed-out bones buried with the ancients. What I did, uh, I used the protein and there's to get their sources of nutrients. So I extracted the collagen from the bones. So I took samples from an individual. And then in Japan, where I finished my trade, uh, we have a laboratory there that you can do everything that you need for a, for a stable isotope analysis. So, yeah, you have to extract uh, the collagen from the bones of those individuals, and once you get the values, I need also to establish certain food resources from those municipalities or areas that I use. Like Let's go on a trip to the Philippines. Some of the sites we visited are Batanes, Lalbo in the Cagayan Valley, Benguet Province, Santa Ana in Manila, the city capital of Cebu Province, and a couple other places. 
So one of them is Batanes. Uh, it's both the National Museum and the UP uh, Anthropology. They both excavated in that area. So that means I can get um, more than one, more than five individuals. I also went to Batanes to get um sample of their staple food. I can also use that to gauge value that I can get from my analysis. I went to the fishing village. So they have this uh, fish that they said that uh, for a long time they've been using that as a staple food. And then I, I interviewed the old people what they remember as their old food. This particular fish from Batanes is known as the arayu. It's a type of dolphin fish that's line-caught and really a lifeline for many, many generations of local Ivatans. This fish, which is often slung like two or three at a time, they're huge across fishermen's backs when they haul them in from the sea. They're split down the middle, scored into equal portions, and then salted and dried for a week in what can only be called unpredictable Batanes weather. Remember, Batanes is at the very tip of the Philippines, and in Batanes, these fish are either hung in a dedicated smokehouse that's made of bamboo and palm trees just outside the kitchen in people's backyards, or over the hearth in the kitchen, slowly smoked as they go about their daily cooking, to last for the rest of the year. And what's amazing is how these local fishermen, called matau, have perfected this preparation for arayu fish over centuries. It's such a testament to the artisanship that's needed to preserve this kind of fish, and it's just lasted through time for the very same reasons that their ancestors had this fish for a staple food. In Lalo, Cagayan Valley, Going down from Batanes, I worked in Lalo, Cagayan Valley for 10 years, from 95 to 2005. Lalo is very famous for its shell maidens. It's made of freshwater shells. Locally, they call it kabibe. We found some burial sites in a shell midden. And this shell midden, as Dr. Garang describes it, is basically a large trash heap of discarded shells from sea creatures. They were thrown into this huge pile by generations of prehistoric Filipinos in the Cagayan Valley. Over time, these prehistoric garbage dumps basically also became burial sites, where the dead were laid to rest above this layer of shells. And then finally, much later on, they were also buried under layers of fine, silky clay that flowed down the river from the mountain ranges up north. You can see how how our ancestors relied on this Cagayan River by gathering and collecting the shells. Maybe as their food, you meet, and then they just throw it in the riverbank, and, and it piled up. And here, Dr. Garang says, some of these shell deposits can get up to 10 feet deep, while some other sites are from the 16th century, and some have been dated to come from as far back as the Neolithic period, that's when people learned how to use metal tools like shovels and axes to domesticate crops and herd animals. This Neolithic period in our global history is also widely considered the beginning of farming. So Union Shell then along the Cagayan River, uh, that is really very interesting. I'll say, 
it's easy to forget a lot of the history that literally lies under our feet. One question that stumped Dr. Garong and her Japanese colleagues, though, has to do with what they found after examining those human bones that were at the top of the shell pile. Remember, there's the 10-foot layer of discarded shells, and then above that were human bones from ancient grave sites. And those human bones must have had traces in somewhat large quantities of all the shellfish they ate, right? But... He found out that those who gathered the shells, they did not eat the shell. Instead, they make uh, this salted kadibe, the salted meat, and then it's, it's like a preserved uh, food. And then they will sell it. So all that work that our ancestors did to harvest the shells and extract the meat, turns out that wasn't even for their own consumption. Instead, it was to make preserved oyster meat that may have been traded with inland communities or early seafarers that traveled along the Philippine Peninsula, possibly going all the way to China, possibly even encouraging the development of oyster sauce. Mind blown. In Banget province. They have this ritual that, that will last for a year and like uh, removing all the muscles, the fat of the individual, like tinapa, you know, are you familiar still with tinapa? Tinapa is a Tagalog term for smoked fish. Traditionally, it's made with scad or milkfish. And it's salted or brined, hung out to dry, and finally smoked. Tinapa tastes intensely of the sea. And I kind of love them because they look like little sun gods basking in their golden brown glow, especially when they're all laid out in like these neat circles on a woven tray called bilao. All you can see is the skin. It's only in Kabayan where we can find the practice. So these mummies in Benguet province, the ones that are found in wooden boxes, have been dried and preserved in a process similar to smoked fish. I wonder if these practices are connected. In Manila? If you go to Manila, we have this Santa Ana site. It's close to the Pasig River, actually, and uh, based from my studies, they utilize the, the Pasig River for their food. In Cebu? If you go to Visayas area, uh, we have the Bolhoon. That's in the province of Cebu. And here's an interesting thing. If you ask native Cebuanos about some of their favorite foods, no doubt a large chunk of them will swear by corn. But have you ever wondered why that's so? So they cannot grow rice. That's why they relied on maize or corn and millet. According to what Dr. Garang's research uncovered, Despite being so close to water, most of the human bones they found were actually not composed of sea creatures, but instead largely of plants that are called C4 plants. In the book, she identifies these as rice, corn, and millet. So what we can surmise is that in pre-colonial times, dating back to the same metal age of those shells up in the Cagayan Valley, Indigenous people in Cebu grew millet. 
Over time, though rice became a staple crop in other regions of the Philippines, it never really took hold in Cebu because the soil was mostly made of limestone, and rice simply doesn't grow well in limestone soil. Later on, when the Spanish brought corn to the Philippines, that's when locals realized that corn loved this kind of soil and growing environment. So, maize thrived and never left the Cebuano's diet. Next, I wanted to know, what were some challenges that Dr. Garung and her team came across? Challenge 1. Time and Thieves If, it, if it's already like past 5, we need to stop our digging, our excavation. So. Um, before you remove and recover all the materials, including the bones, you have to properly expose it. Our scientific illustrator needs to draw the whole structure or the whole skeleton, including the artifact, together with the human remains. So, as Dr. Garung tells it, in their early digs, they go about their work and, you know, at the end of the day, cover up the site they'd started digging for the night. Actually, we're not really that cautious because we thought that the people, they used to watch us during the day. That we're doing archaeology and we're doing lectures in the schools. So we thought that um, they will also protect that. But then... The next day, when we returned, we somebody did the excavation and they removed the ceramics. So um, from then on, I started to, to gauge, to have this sense of time. We need to really estimate whether we can still finish or not. So basically, as soon as they see hints of a new layer of bones, you know, if it's close to 4 or 5 p.m. at the end of their day, they realize that it was safer to leave the site undisturbed for the night. Because... Once you start working on it, you can't really go back. you got to keep those bones and artifacts away from extreme exposure to harsh winds or humidity. Then the illustrators and photographers they have on the team have to document where everything is in relation to the skeletons and other markers that they've found. So you have to actually do the work of carefully excavating these items that are hundreds of years old. So it's better if you have the whole day, the whole time, to do it, and then at five o'clock, you have this peace of mind that you you don't worry about other people might might be doing archaeology at night. <laughs> Normally, they they are the treasure hunters who really who really ruin the site, or whoever is have this negative feeling about archaeology. So yeah, it happens always. I could say it breaks my heart to hear that, but. In reality, I prefer being optimistic. The core of the problem is that locals see this group of scientists digging about their land. Maybe they don't fully understand what people find so interesting in a pile of bones. But what they do know is that sometimes these digs unearth pottery, and they know how to make money from that in some way. 
Challenge number two on rituals and religion. When it comes to burial, it's it's very sensitive. You you need to be also an anthropologist. Like you need to observe if they have some rituals that uh, they perform for burying their loved ones. Even though I am um, I am a Christian, I am a Methodist. So in my faith, we pray, of course. In other community, in other ethnic group, they have their own ways about remembering the dead. So in every community that they visit for a dig? I ask somebody to pray, like a shaman. I will ask if there's um, if someone can lead us. So in that way, we are making ourselves uh, visible to the community in a way, trying to adopt in their practices. They provide offerings of food, sometimes cigarettes and liquor. And after that, uh, once we do the excavation, I always invite people to visit us. They found it's a way of educating people and... Telling them that we're trying to recover it carefully, not to, you know, destroy it, because we, we need to study them. And after, they will be brought to the museum for proper storage. Prior to that, we will try to study them first see if they have other things to tell us beyond the historical aspect. Nobody can tell us unless we we try to dig it. And so that's the only way that we will know how our ancestors lived during those times. To many of us, that probably sounds a little archaic, but it's a reality that researchers like Dr. Garong face working in remote and deeply rural communities in the Philippines. And this leads into Challenge number three A lack of knowledge and involvement And um, the community They're always there in their community But the National Museum only goes there uh, For a month after that, we will go back to our office. But it's the um, it's them, the community, who will really protect whatever uh, heritage uh, we can tell them that they have. I just want to add here that telling locals of the heritage they have in this context means explaining how and why archaeology is important, why it matters. For Dr. Garing and her team who work with a respect for local communities front and center. It's not about stamping out beliefs or even falsifying an ideology that's been in place in those communities for hundreds of years. When outsiders come in to make changes or propose a new way of doing things, naturally they're met with resistance, and that's common to any place in the world. The study of anthropology in itself, deals with so much of this really complex way that humans behave. But what's important is getting locals on board with that basic need 
to keep these kinds of sites undisturbed. This kind of involvement for protecting the cultural aspect, it's really important also. So they should know and they should also be informed that they should not, um, you know, ruin it or do something bad. Instead, they have to really protect it because it's part of our heritage. And that's the only way we will know our past. And with this approach, Dr. Garong hopes that uh, the community will understand and be familiar with what we are doing, and they can also report to us if they they've seen those materials already, and we can check and we can explore. So it will also add information for the national museums. And by extension, the body of knowledge in Philippine archaeology as a whole. What's next? I asked Dr. Garong. Actually, Natasha, it's my uh, dream to to continue the isotopic analysis and to reveal more of the resources. In addition to building a body of research on ancient Filipinos and how they lived, this stable isotopic analysis it can also reveal environmental uh, situation or condition. In other words, it gives us information about what the country's climate and geography used to be like. And combined with modern-day research, this helps scientists better understand how to tackle the big questions that we face today, like how climate change affects farming, fishing, and everyday life in the Philippines. Hopefully, I can still continue doing this in the future. There are still other sites that can be, you know, explore with this kind of research. Uh, at the moment, I'm still working with other burial sites in Negros and still working with uh, understanding the funerary practice in the Philippines during prehistoric time. There's still a lot to study about the practices of burying our loved ones and other analyses that can be done, like ancient DNA. That's also one of my dreams. And working on ancient DNA, I just discovered, is an actual thing. My warmest thanks to Dr. Ame Garung for speaking with us for this interview and answering all the questions I had about the ancient Filipino diet. I hope you learned as much as I did in the process of researching for this episode. Music for this episode is by David Seste. That's his music you hear in the opening and closing credits of the show, Gillicuddy and Blue Dot Sessions. Visit fma.org to hear from these artists and more. My special thanks to Rajiv at the Kitchen Bookstore for connecting me with Dr. Garrow. If you'd like to get a copy of Ancient Filipino Diet, visit www.thekitchenbookstore.com. My special thanks to Rajiv at the Kitchen Bookstore for connecting me with Dr. Garrow. If you'd like to get a copy of the Ancient Filipino Diet, visit www.thekitchenbookstore.com and head over to their Filipinianas section to order. 
they've got some amazing titles. Finally, if you've come this far, I do want to ask you a favor. I would really, really appreciate a short review on iTunes. That helps me reach more listeners and, in turn, gets more people to hear about these awesome stories of food in and from the Philippines. As always, visit exploringfilipinokitchens.com or find Exploring Filipino Kitchens on Facebook to stay tuned for updates. See you next month at Maraming Salamat. Thank you for listening.